We'll be seated. As we continue through the Beatitudes, one of the things that we have noticed is that there is a progression uh, in the Beatitudes that one flows into the next, and I think this paradigm is helpful. I want us to keep it in mind, but I don't want us to try and force it uh, upon the text that this progression is necessarily a practice of ours. It's just something that we see reflected in how the Lord is doing this in our lives. And what I mean by this is while the progression is understandable, we can see it from the text, we recognize our poverty of spirit, that we then mourn over our own sins. As we mourn over our own sins, we're humbled and we respond in meekness or gentleness and so on and so forth. But the progression isn't necessary. For example, a new believer might experience the very last beatitude, persecution. Some of you may have that testimony that when you came to faith, there were those in your family or friends who persecuted you for your faith even before you even knew what it was to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So you see the progression isn't necessarily there. I mean, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, I think one of the things that happens is the Lord, by His Spirit, peels back the layers of our hearts and causes us to see yet more sin as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, which then takes us back to cause us to mourn over that sin. And so the point I'm trying to clarify is that we don't master one beatitude before we move on to the next. As we've already seen, the beatitudes like the fruit of the Spirit are God's gracious work in us. So we may experience this work in varying order. At times, we could experience all of it at once or multiple ones at once. What we don't want to do is turn this into a new form of legalism. Jesus is going to have quite a bit to say about that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, as we'll see. And so I keep coming back to that. I know it's repetitive, but I think it's helpful and necessary because we're all wired that way. We're all, there's a little legalist inside every one of us. And he, uh, he, he, he sticks his head up like the whole whack-a-mole. You think you've got him nailed down in one area and he shows up in another area. You know, it's it, it, humility. You know, the minute you know that you have it, you've lost it. It's that kind of battle that we fight uh, with the little Pharisee that's in every one of us, the little legalist. We're inclined to performance. I mentioned last week that we do better when we're observed, and that shows us something about our own hearts. If our hearts were really pure, we would do well all the time, but we tend to perform. We like checklists, some of us more than others. Some of us like the satisfaction of measuring things, completing things, finishing things. That's why I love cutting grass even in Florida, because you can see it and then it's done and you, you know, completed it. It was a measurable task. But the Beatitudes are not a checklist. They are rather the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in all believers as we grow in Christ's likeness. And because it is the transformative work in all believers, this leads us to the, the, the next warning that I want to say about turning it to a checklist. One of the dangers of turning this into performance is that we can easily then turn this into judgment against others to where we make a checklist and then we look around and say, oh, yeah, they're not being very meek. You know, oh, did you see what they were doing? That's not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Do you see how this crops up in our hearts the minute we turn it into performance? Yeah, so I'm not the only one here. Okay, so you understand this, that we have to be careful that we don't do this, that we don't adopt this kind of attitude, that we look down our noses and we condescend others uh, in this way. Again, Jesus is going to have a lot to say about this in the Sermon on the Mount, that we, uh, that we must be on guard against such an attitude. So instead, we give thanks to God for His gracious work in our hearts, not only ours, but in the lives of other believers as well, which keeps us then from the comparison game to which we become haughty towards one another. 
Instead, just as we trust God to finish the work in our own lives, guess what? We can trust him to finish the work in our other brothers' and sisters' lives as well. He'll be faithful to do it in their lives. He doesn't really need our help. He's got it covered. Just as he's taking care of us in all of our sin and misery, so he will take care of one another. Instead, may this sanctifying work, and as we mourn over sin, and as we grow and meekness, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, may all this build in us instead hearts of gratefulness for what God is doing, that he hasn't left us to our own devices, but he is in the work of transforming us into the image of his Son, to the praise of his glory. Look now in verse 7 where we pick up, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I've mentioned the paradigm of progression. Another paradigm or, or way of looking at this is that the first four Beatitudes kind of reflect our reaction to, to God in terms of what he's done. There's still a, an outward reflection to others, but the, the last four clearly reflect uh, uh, what, how we interact with others. And we see this uh, with this first one with mercy. This doesn't mean that God does the first four and we do the last four. Don't hear me saying that. This is the work of God's gracious spirit in our, all of our lives. It's his work, not ours. Uh, but rather, it's a reflection of that work that he's doing in our hearts that then affects our relationship to others. The reflection is always God's work in us for his glory, not our own. We do labor. We do work. We do strive. We do fight but we recognize that it is God's power at work within us. Like the old Piper quote, the old Piper quote, like that's really that old. But, you know, John Piper said, we get the help, he gets the glory. That's really helpful, I think, when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit or the Beatitudes that we're constantly calling to him for help because we cannot do it ourselves. We recognize that, that this isn't something that we achieve. It's not a checklist that we accomplish. We get the help then and he gets the glory. So it is with this beatitude of mercy. Mercy is rooted in love. Synonym is compassion. That may be a word that we're more comfortable with. Compassion is certainly caring about others, whether it's showing kindness just in general, whether it's granting forgiveness even when we don't want to, or giving assistance to someone who is in need. All of those would fall under that. The opposite of mercy would be then the opposite of those things. Revenge, harboring bitterness or being stingy with our time and our resources. In Scripture, there's also a component of justice when it comes to the idea of mercy. A lot of times I insert the word biblical before words like justice and mercy because those terms have been co-opted in our current day to mean other things, and so we have to kind of define our terms to understand what we mean. And what I'm saying here is that what we typically think of justice is a person getting what they deserve. You know, it's, it's, you do this, you put in, put, what was the old computer put in? Uh, yeah, that one. Yes, input, output, that kind of thing. It's that, that's, that's our idea of justice, right? Because we have been forgiven, though. Biblically, it transforms all of that. Because we have been shown the mercy of God, it counters the idea of what we would see in our human mind as what is right or just or fair, because we have been forgiven, because we have been shown grace, because we have been helped when we were helpless, it becomes just or right that we show mercy. Do you see how that's transformative? So in, as an unbeliever, it might be the just thing to do that if our neighbor smashes our mailbox, we go over and smash theirs. I mean, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that's our mindset. Seems pretty fair. But because we have been shown mercy, 
we are to show mercy. Within the idea of justice, we might have to think of the concept of righteousness or doing the right thing. Again, humanly speaking, justice or doing the right thing might, might at times see, seem like seeking revenge or withholding grace or help to others. You know, they don't really deserve it. They haven't done their part. They haven't put in their effort. But biblically speaking, our position is that of recipients of God's mercy, which then transforms how we see we are to react to others. Paul writes in Ephesians, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It is because of God's rich mercy toward us that we are now compelled to display that same mercy toward others. One of the clearest examples of this teaching is in the parable that Jesus told about the man who had the great debt that was beyond his ability to repay. It's a parable that we're all familiar with. I won't reread the whole thing, but I would mention that the parable's context is really important because Peter came up and asked Jesus a question before he told that parable. Peter asked him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter had to be thinking seven, right? You know, you can, you can imagine Peter. He really thought he was shooting high. And I mean, Jesus blows him out of the water. No, <laughs> 77 or 70 times seven uh, times are you to forgive. In other words, don't ever stop forgiving. And so immediately after he answers that question, it says Jesus told this parable that there was this man. He had this incredible debt. He couldn't pay it. The king, when he went to him and he pleaded with him, the king showed him mercy, forgave his debt. Then the man goes out and what does he do? Finds some guy who owns him 20 bucks and chokes him. Threatens to throw him in jail. Yeah. So the king hears about this, calls him back in, and he says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should repay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's heavy because it was at great cost that Jesus showed mercy to us in laying down his life to pay the price for our sins that we could not pay. And so the question then is, how could we not be merciful? We know the answer. We understand it as far as we're able to understand how great the forgiveness that is ours in Christ Jesus, but we all know the challenge that it is still to be merciful. Everyone wants mercy for ourselves, but not necessarily for everybody else. But the call in Scripture to show mercy is ever before us because everything we have is by the mercy of God. John Stott helpfully writes, Jesus does not specify the categories of people he has in mind to whom his disciples are to show mercy. He gives no indication whether he's thinking primarily of those overcome by disaster, like the traveler from Jerusalem to Jericho whom robbers assaulted and to whom the Good Samaritan showed mercy 
or of the hungry, the sick, and the outcast on whom he himself regularly took pity, or of those who wrong us so that justice cries out for punishment, but mercy for forgiveness. There was no need for Jesus to elaborate. Our God is a merciful God and shows mercy continuously. The citizens of his kingdom must show mercy too. The promise then of this beatitude is that those who show mercy will receive mercy. This is not transactional as if we could earn it. I hope no one hears that. It is instead the reflection of to those who have received mercy will be merciful. It is a natural outworking. It is a natural display of their fruit. That's how we turn that around and understand it. It is a true sign that we have received mercy, that we are merciful. But every one of us understands how difficult this is. It's easy to talk about it in this setting. It's easy to think maybe of the ways that we've shown mercy in the past. But I think if any of us received a report card, we would find that there were many more instances of us failing to show mercy than areas where we have shown mercy. And so what do we need to do but continually run back to the cross from where unending mercy flows every time we lack mercy so that we might be refreshed and reminded of all that is ours in Christ Jesus, that we might then be lavish in giving that mercy. In verse 8, we read the next beatitude, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In Psalm 24, the psalmist asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who is it that can ascend the hill of the Lord? We know the answer. There was only one who was able to fulfill this psalm. None of us can do this. None of us have clean hands. None of us have a pure heart. None of us can see God because we are not holy as he is holy. And we know this about ourselves. We know our hearts aren't pure. We know our hands aren't clean. We feel then the quandary of that distance that that sin places between us and God. In Exodus 33, Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God explained to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. But then God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and he said this to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses, like all of us, was not pure in heart. He was a sinner like you and me, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God showed him mercy, displaying his goodness toward him, revealing his name, the Lord saves to him. And in the same way, God has declared his saving work to us in sending his son to display his goodness toward us and redeeming us from our sins. And it is in this work of redemption that our hearts are purified, that we are given pure hearts, that our hands are clean, that we are washed from the stain of sin. And yet we still struggle. We know our hearts are far from pure. The idea of purity here is not just the idea of an absence of pollution or or what we might think of with water, but it's also the idea of wholeness or single-mindedness, that there's no division or deceit or hypocrisy in a heart that is pure. A heart is not divided. It doesn't have more than one loyalty. And, of course, the Pharisees of Jesus' day were continually called out by him for this, that they did things outwardly but without sincerity of heart. And so what this beatitude is describing is not only purity in the sense of 
what we might think of a lack of of, uh, pollution, but also that it is free from falsehood. It is an inward disposition to wholly trusting God. See, it's possible for us to be loyal and to be sincere to the wrong things. We can do that. We often are. But the sincerity that is described here is toward God fully and completely. It is by faith. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? And the answer is kind of obvious. None of us, right? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the hope then of the gospel is that God has removed our dead hearts and given us new hearts, clean hearts, washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And this is how we can know the promise that is given in this beatitude, for they shall see God. This is what John in his first epistle describes. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Purity is by faith. We are washed clean by faith, given new hearts by faith. And while in this life our hearts are still divided, we still feel the remains of sin's effects, we know this, the status of our hearts before God is pure. So we again run to the cross, refreshed and reminded of what Christ has done for us in His cleansing work on our behalf. And in doing so, we grow in a desire to be undivided in our worship of Him, to one day see what has, with, our, with eyes of faith, has always been through a glass dimly. One day we will see clearly and we will be with Him and see Him because we will be like Him, made holy and pure. And then next in verse 9, the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is the only time in the New Testament this word is used, but it's not hard for us to understand. Sometimes when a word is used only once, it's challenging because you don't have other places to compare it to. But the concept of peacemaking is clearly taught uh, throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament. So this isn't difficult. Making peace, it's those who make peace. But where do we go with this? How do we reflect this? Is it the idea that we're to be out there inserting ourselves into every conflict we observe Uh, Is it that we're to join some international effort to arbitrate peace between warring nations? Or are we to be the kind of pacifist that goes around and just they're there to every conflict that we see, you know, and try and uh, pacify people? I think that may be a little too forced and literal understanding of this word. But instead, other passages show us what it means to be a peacemaker. That is, whoever we are, wherever God has planted us, whatever he's called us to, then as far as it is possible with us in those situations, live peaceably with others. That's what peacemaking looks like. The desire to make peace is not one that stems from self-interest. The world, unregenerate people want peace. I mean, if, if in terms of just the absence of conflict, if that's what you mean by that, no one is looking to add conflict into their life or we would consider them dysfunctional if they did. But Peace here is not from that kind of self-interest. The peace that is being described here, the result of the fruit of the Spirit's presence in our life, is the result of God's making peace with us. 
that we have been made at peace with God because we have seen our spiritual bankruptcy, because we have come to terms with the fact that we have sinned and we mourn over that sin, because we have looked to Christ alone for forgiveness and thus been cleansed from all unrighteousness. We are now at peace with God, and therefore we want others to know and experience that same peace. And so part of the peacemaking that's described here would include evangelism. Because we have known the love of God born in our hearts through redemption, we want others to know this as well. This is part of peacemaking. So we want to sow seeds that produce a harvest of righteousness. That's how James described it. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So our friends, our families' lives, we're looking for ways to share the hope that is within But peacemaking goes beyond that, not just to include evangelism, but how we interact with others. And this may be more of what we think about when we think of peacemaking. We read it this morning in our reading of the law from Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. David taught something similar in Psalm 34. He says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So implied here in what David is giving in this instruction is that peacemaking includes turning from evil, doing good, and guarding your speech. If we didn't hear anything else today, there's enough work for all of us to go focus on right there. Turning from evil, doing good, and guarding our speech. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, almost more than we can accomplish right there. And the implication here, that again, that's made is long days, good experiences. Who is the one who desires to experience good things? Who is the one who wants many days? Pursue peace. Be a peacemaker. So we see what, what peacemaking is there. We also see what peacemaking isn't in other passages of Scripture. Proverbs fifteen eighteen: a hot-tempered, hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So angry outbursts work against peace. That's kind of the no-duh comment of the day, right? We all know that. We've all experienced that. We've all been on both sides of that equation, both the recipients of angry outbursts and the giver of angry outbursts. Instead, restraint or self-control allows seeds of peace to be sown where strife would otherwise spring up. A soft answer turns away wrath. Harsh words stir up anger. We might also think of peace in connection to mercy. Whether mercy is shown through the giving of help, through forgiveness, or even through uh, just withholding what people deserve, not not just what we might think of by the definition of mercy, Mercy can produce peace. We might argue that without mercy, peace will not be present, whether it's in our relationships in our home, uh, within our broader family, uh, in our church, or even the relationships that we have outside of the church. Maturity as a Christian will display itself through peaceableness as well. As we grow in grace, peace will be the fragrant aroma of our lives as opposed to strife, Broken relationships, hurting others, and contempt. I mean, what, is the, what's the, what does the trail look like behind us? Think, for example, the qualifications for an elder in Christ's church given in 1 Timothy 3. He is not to be violent. He's not to be quarrelsome. He's to be gentle or meek, self-controlled, 
hospitable. And while these characteristics are described of elders, they also apply to all Christians. This doesn't mean that we're, any of us are exempt from this because we're not an elder. These are the same descriptions we see in other places of every believer. So we can't exempt ourselves from this. This is what a mature Christian looks like as they are conformed to the image of Christ. The promise given to those who make peace is that they shall be called the sons of God. We already read that passage from 1 John chapter 3 that describes our sonship uh, so clearly. The promise of this beatitude in that making peace is that we will look like him whose son we are. People will know us by our love. They will know us by the peace, the trail that we leave behind us. He will call us sons, and others will note that we are his sons by the fruit of peace in our lives. We are children by faith, children of God by faith. That faith produces peace, fruit of the Spirit, right? Beatitude, peaceableness, peacemaking that overflows in our lives. Because God has made peace with us by his Son, we now declare that peace to others, demonstrate that peace with others as his children who have been led by God, having received the spirit of sonship. In other words, we want to look like our Father. We want to look like the peacemaker that he has been toward us. In each of us, the Spirit of God is doing this work, these beatitudes. Some of you may come here today and think, things are going pretty good. Others of you may be sitting there feeling shamed. Things are going horribly. Let me say this. Our posture, because this is a work of God, our posture is not let go, let God. That's, that's an unbiblical idea. God created us as volitional creatures. He's given us a soul. Uh, we make choices. We have our mind and our heart, the inner person, who we are, our thoughts and our emotions. So we don't just sit back and do nothing, but we labor, we fight, we strain, we work to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. Yet we know that we cannot do this on our own. So we're constantly running back to the cross for the help that only comes from him, that we might receive his help for his glory. Again, it may be easy for some to sit here today and think, yeah, I can think of a ton of examples this week where I've done all of these things. Others of you may be straining, thinking this is not me at all. The good news is that God's new mercies are new every morning, and all of us have a new week ahead of us. So may we look to him for the wisdom and the power that is described here in the Beatitudes. But may we be on guard against our own sense of performance, our own sense of self-righteousness in all of these matters. The beauty and what we glory in with all of this is that Christ has shown us perfect mercy. Christ was pure in our place. And Christ has made peace for us with God. He has accomplished all of this, having reconciled to us to us to him through the cross. And so what we celebrate of and sing of today is not our own accomplishments, nor do we grovel in our failures. Instead, we glory in our Redeemer who perfectly stood in our place, the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins that we might now live unto him. Let's pray. Father, would you make our hearts glad in Jesus that for all of the ways that we fail, have failed, will fail, Jesus is our perfect substitute. But thank you, Lord, that your good work in us is not just a past action of justification, 
but that your good work in us goes on right now through just through sanctification, that you are continuing and you are going to bring to completion the work that you began in us. Lord, we don't always have eyes to see this. We struggle. Our faith becomes weak because we see our many sins and failures. And so would you make our hearts glad in Jesus today? And would you cause us to look to him again and again to be refreshed and renewed in all that is true about us in the gospel? That we have been made at peace by him with you. So give us a desire then to be merciful, to be pure in heart, and to be peacemakers with others. And use us, Lord, for your glory, that we might declare, that there might be that fragrant aroma from our lives of the peace that we have received in Jesus, that others might come to know you. We praise this, we pray this for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen.